It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Brad Casper, CEO and co-founder of Heart and Soul Marketing. With a lifetime of experience on the client's side of the table, Brad knows what matters most to brands and marketers, which led him to create Heart and Soul. He infuses his entrepreneurial spirit into his clients while helping challenger brands compete against legacy brands as well as market leaders. Brad has a diverse track record of success, leading some of the world's most iconic brands like Tide, Dial, Olay, Pampers, Pantene, Arm & Hammer, Trojan, First Response, and Rightguard. He has run large, well-resourced companies, as well as entrepreneurial smaller ones, publicly traded, privately owned, and private equity backed. This has included CEO of Dogswell, a private equity backed pet food company, executive chairman of Dimatized Nutrition, a private equity backed sports nutrition business, president of the Phoenix Suns, president and chief executive officer of the Dial Corporation, president of Church and Dwight, and more than 16 years at Procter & Gamble, in a variety of senior leadership roles, both domestically and globally. Brad received his Bachelor of Science degree in finance from Virginia Tech University and was extended a fellowship by Thunderbird Graduate School of Management in Arizona. He has also been involved in a significant number of community roles there, including the Greater Phoenix Economic Council, as well as other industry association boards. Brad Casper, my old friend and former P&G colleague, welcome into the corner office. Well, thank you. It's good to be in the corner office. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, where is that corner office today? Somewhere in Arizona, I believe, right? Where do we find it? It, it is in Paradise Valley, Arizona. Paradise Valley. Great. The winter's setting in a little bit or uh, still a little warm outside these days? You know, we've got uh, an overcast day, but uh, it's it's definitely winter is, is knocking on the door and we'll drop 20 degrees in the next couple of days and actually get some rain out here in the desert. But uh, it is welcome because we haven't had very much of it in 2023. <laughs> well, nice place to be in the winter and uh, greetings from the uh, South Beach of Florida. Not too far, not South Beach, actually Southern Florida. I, I got to get my nomenclature right being a new resident down here but uh it's a little chilly here too but uh nice and clear outside we just had all that rain that came up the uh east coast that's hitting it hard now but we've got a nice sunny day out so good to connect with you and i know arizona's been a home for a while if i recall i think it was dial that originally took you there and we'll get to that in a minute but you didn't grow up there so let's start kind of with your early years tell us where you grew up and what your early family life was like Brett. 
Yeah, I um, I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, and as you know, that uh, is the home of uh, an employer of yours and mine. But uh, you know, I grew up in a, a really simple little uh, household: mom, dad, and, and an older sister. And grew up in a great neighborhood, great schools, and and, and frankly, a lot of great influences on my early life. But uh, you know, Cincinnati was home, and it's been uh, since 2001 since I've lived there. Yeah. Now, did dad work for Proctor or General Electric? I remember those were the two employers back in the days when we lived there. Yeah, uh, he worked for neither, but he was a very successful executive in his own right. He was the uh, president and CEO of a, a manufacturing uh, uh, outfit that was based there. But he retired when I was in like sophomore year of high school and it was a little i for me it was a little bit odd to have a father who was retired but i shouldn't have worried very long because within minutes he came out of retirement during the savings and loan crisis and despite the fact that he had never really done anything other than a little bit of board work for a savings and loan he steps into the crisis resurrects one savings and loan, merges it with another, and then eventually takes it public um, and and has a very successful end to his career in, in, the, in the banking industry, if you will. What an interesting second career. Now, was he in financial services or banking before? No, not really at all. Uh, I think because of his intellect uh, and obviously being a manufacturing executive and he handled a lot of complex transactions and mergers and acquisitions and stuff like that. I think, uh, when he was appointed to a savings and loan board, you know, he learned a lot from that board position, but little did he ever expect to be brought into the main seat where he became CEO and chairman. But my dad was in his seventies when he took that institution public. Um, I, I should flash forward, Brent. He he passed away at 101 years old, but he was still working into his 80s. <laughs> Good for him. Well, I'll tell you, that tells our listeners a lot about retirement, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Good long life. Keep working hard and uh, find your passion and keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, you know, was, when he was passing away and I uh, was in hospice, he... I, I went out to see him in Cincinnati and he said, you know, uh, I've had a good long life, Brad. And honestly, for the last 15 to 20 years, I live vicariously through you. And it's because um, every day you stepped into a boardroom, every day you were contemplating a, a major you know, C-suite challenge and you would share some of those things with me. And we'd reconnect a couple of days later. I wanted to see how you solved the problem and whether or not it would have been the same way that I did it. So I never told you that, but I lived vicariously and I think you helped sustain me these last 10 or 15 years. Wow. What a wonderful relationship. Tell us about yeah. mom. Did she stay at home or did she have a career? Mom uh, was stay at home. Uh, she had a career, obviously, before starting a family. And, um, you know, she, like my dad, we're both from Pittsburgh, uh, very simple upbringings, if you will. Uh, moving to Cincinnati is, is almost like the twin sister of Pittsburgh. And uh, But, you know, when my sister and I were born, she was super active in all of our academic areas. She was that mom who was always in the school helping teachers. And, you know, she was celebrated in her own way. 
But, um, you know, I, because she passed away so much earlier than my dad, I, I probably reflect more on all the amazing things my dad did in my life. But, you know, honestly, my mom was such an amazing, powerful influence. And my sister and I and my wife and I were recently talking about my mom. And she was just that epitome of a loving mom. And, and she did such a great job of it. I know there are so many children today that honestly don't have that affirmation every day that they're loved. And um, I can say that I never, ever felt uh, one day that I wasn't the most loved thing on earth. Two great role models. I love it. What about other influencers? Uh, do you remember any, you know, teachers, coaches, other folks that had an influence on your early life, Brad? Oh, great question. Um, yeah, there's this one. Uh, he, he turned out to be my freshman ball coach. But even more so, he um, he was an English teacher for me, and you know I was I was good in school, and and uh, some might say very good. But he he reached me in a way that um, it was outside of basketball. He he loved poetry, and he had the most fun classroom of all time. And he made learning such a, an incredible adventure and. You didn't want to be sick. You wanted to go to that class. So his name was Bob West. And earlier this year, in, or in 2023, I got recognized by my high school as the most distinguished alumnus. And I tipped my hat and made a, a tribute to Bob West because in so many ways, he, I think, influenced me. Uh, the appreciation of, of speaking well and, and maybe even speaking metaphorically because with his love of poetry, he infused a lot of uh, different forms of language early in my life, and uh, I'm grateful to him for that. You mentioned you're a good student in school. What were the uh, subjects that you enjoyed the most and, and excelled at as well? I didn't always enjoy it, but I was really good at math, and I, at a time when you know advanced placement today, advanced placement is so common, but it in my era, it was a little bit less common, but, you know, I was able to test out on my freshman year of, uh, of math uh, in a, as a business student at Virginia Tech because of the stuff I was able to do in high school. Uh, beyond that, uh, I, I really wasn't very keen on the sciences per se. I did well in them, but I just wasn't keen on it. Maybe I, I gravitated towards, you know, some of the uh, arts areas, etc., played band for a little while, but then sports really, really took over. But history and government and those kinds of things, I always found very, very fascinating and did well in those areas as well. Was basketball your favorite sport? Uh, probably slightly more so than football. I was more accomplished in basketball. Um, thought about playing at, at Virginia Tech. Uh, in fact, selected Virginia Tech for that uh, reason. But I was also, at least my senior year, I was a pretty accomplished quarterback for our high school football team. So I could have played either Division One football or basketball probably, but ended up uh, making the decision to go to Virginia Tech, but then seeing the sacrifice that was going to be required to be at that level. Um, it was more than I was willing to make because I knew I wasn't going to play at the professional levels and the sacrifices just seemed greater than the benefits. So I focused on being a good student and getting an education, and uh, I would say that that was probably a good decision. What about entrepreneurial things growing up in Cincinnati? Did you have the ubiquitous paper route or 
you know, so <laughs> Christmas cards at Christmas time or other types of things. I think uh, I remember it was it's funny you should ask that question. I don't think of myself or, and certainly then I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur meant, nor did I ever envision myself as such. But there was a time for one of my sports teams and uh, we had to raise some additional money if we wanted to get better uniforms. So there I am, um, you know, walking around door to door selling household cleaning products and lo and behold, I end up knocking on the door of like the SVP or EVP of Procter & Gamble. And I'm having to convince him why this stuff is better. But I didn't have any idea that that was his role, nor was I all, all that cognizant of what P&G made. I did successfully sell him some product, though, uh, because I said it beats Mr. Clean and Spick and Span and all these other things. And maybe he was compelled to say, well, maybe I need to get this formula into our lab. <laughs> get it tested, right? It, See if this kid's right. <laughs> yep. But uh, that was one of the few. I think I, for some charity, I think I had to uh, go door to door collecting money, et cetera. And I think my reward because I raised the most money on that door-to-door -door campaign. The, they gave me a symbol to go along with my drum set. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, high school jobs, college jobs, did you do any part-time work as you were either preparing to go to college or once you got into Virginia Tech? You know, uh, I think most of the time, freshman, sophomore, junior, I, I did some yard work. Cincinnati had a lot of big open grassy fields. So, my dad's strong work ethic, um, you know, got me out there working and raising a little bit of money, particularly after I got a car and, you know, had some gasoline tanks to fill up. Um, I think near the end of my high school, I got a job at a fitness center and, and was literally the manager of a Nautilus fitness center. And, and that was kind of fun uh, for a while. But I, I spent so much of my uh, off seasons training for football or basketball that that was always the more important thing. And so I never had steady uh, work in high school. Was it pretty clear you go to college? Was that an expectation that either you had personally or mom and dad uh, instilled in you? Uh, yeah. It's funny you should ask that. Um, it was just always my assumption. My, my folks made it very clear that that was the path to get ahead. My dad, um, he, he went to Duke University and he was admitted when he was 16 years old, I think, wow. to Duke and, and graduated in four years and, uh, and had a wonderful experience at Duke. So I think it just it was just the thing that we did. And at our high school, probably 90%, 95% would go on to high school or go from high school to college. So I think that was just the expectation. And I never thought about anything else. You got a finance degree. What was that kind of because of your uh, astuteness with, uh, with math or did that kind of, you know, entice you as you got into those general education classes? I knew I was going to go business, but for the first two years, I had no idea which area I had focus on. I was good in accounting and good in finance. I viewed accounting as being maybe just a little too boring and, and, and rule-based. I thought finance would be a lot more dynamic, which I think it was. But I also got some really good advice as I was at that point in my junior year, do I declare finance? 
I was taking marketing courses, and I'm sure you can relate to this, Brant, as an, another alum of, uh, of Procter & Gamble. I found the marketing classes to be so much more fun. And so I was about to declare and go marketing, marketing management, et cetera. But my dad had a friend at the University of Cincinnati, and I think he was a professor now that I think of it. And he gave me a, a point of view. He said, listen, marketing uh, is something that you can often, you know, become really, really good at, and you don't have to necessarily study it in college to be so. And he said, let's face it, if you ever joined a company like Procter and Gamble, <laughs> and I was probably 20 at the time when he said this, he says, um, they're going to teach you everything you need to know about it. They are, they go after the best athlete, so to speak, intellectually. And uh, so that would be pretty foretelling. So I literally decided to go finance and coming out of Virginia Tech, uh, I did go to General Electric in their financial management program, which was almost like an in-house MBA. And I was taking courses inside of GE and taking rotational assignments in their massive aircraft engine group in Cincinnati. And I, it was that at that point, I was doing a lot of accounting and a lot of finance, but honestly, Brent, I, I, I wasn't loving the work. Yeah. And so I always kind of kept my eye on marketing, which later learned, uh, you know, turned into a, a career and life change. Well, I want to talk about that in a minute, but just one last question on your college years. Do you remember any classes you took outside of your major and what kind of impact those might have had on your thinking? You know, I, I there was I, I wouldn't necessarily say that any of the additional courses, uh, I, maybe some psychology and sociology, appreciation of music, uh, coaching for excellence, a couple of those summer courses that were an easy three credit ratings and uh, would keep my uh, allow me to continue to play intramurals and have fun. I enjoyed that. The psychology courses in particular, I thought were really, really interesting. And as you know, in, as a marketer, really understanding the psychology of choices. Um, maybe it was because of my love of psychology that I found a natural fit ultimately in marketing. But like so many other students, uh, you know, I graduated magna cum laude, which I think just proved that I could study and, and get good grades, but it was all the things I did outside of my major and frankly, outside of academics that I think really catapulted me into a position where I could be successful later. President of my fraternity involved in five, six, seven different outside organizations, taking on a lot of responsibility at 18, 19 years old in the community, in nonprofit and things like that. I think more so than any course I took, it was that, I don't know, that accelerated learning in leadership and management responsibilities that got me ready for things that would come down the track later. So GE was your first job and you spent about three years there, I think, right? And yeah, it was about two and a half to three. And uh, the, the program that I was on that financial management program or FMP, it was a full two-year course. I took an off program assignment and was working in an aircraft engine business group on what turned out to be the B-1 bomber engine program. Um, it was shrouded in secrecy at the time, so we didn't refer to it as that, but that's in fact what it became. 
But as, as intriguing as that may seem as, as it relates to national defense and, and all that kind of stuff, I ended up having a, a top secret clearance with the governor government. But once I got through that and, and I thought about the basics of day-to-day job, it wasn't as enjoyable. And then I had a prophetic moment with one of my former bosses at GE, and he just said, you know, engineering is kind of king at this portion of GE for you to really exert your, you know, your strengths in interpersonal communication and in really leverage your leadership skills. You may have to go to a non-engineering centric business mm-hmm. and, you know, rather than move to get that part of GE, you know, I, I happen to be working in Cincinnati already. And uh, in the shadows of Procter and Gamble, and that's where you know I actually bumped into somebody at a wedding, whose father uh, was a, a very successful GE executive. And as we were waiting to shake the hand of the groom and kiss the bride, he convinced me to come to Procter. And by the time I kissed the bride, I was ready to join. <laughs> was that a, a Procter executive that you ended up working for at some point in time? Never. Uh, oddly enough, he was a successful uh, sales executive. And after he did a little you know, overview of the company and, and talked about the importance of sales and customer development and sent me all the brochures, et cetera. But in the meantime, he had reached out to the advertising department, also in most companies known as the marketing department. But as you and I recall, it was called the advertising department. Yep and brand management. And once I got a hold of that brand management description, I said, Oh my gosh, (laughs) that is what I want to do. And, um, and Proctor did not fail to please and deliver on all the things that they had promised. So it was a remarkable experience. What year did you join them? I joined Proctor in 1985 and, um, you know, did 16 and a half years with them. Uh, and that's where you and I intercepted yeah. when uh, we were in Asia. As a matter of fact, yeah. Yep. So was Proctor the first place you started managing people or did you have people with leadership responsibility? That you At GE, no, I was an individual contributor. So my first uh, opportunity to be a, a manager, and in this case, a brand manager and be responsible for others was when I landed in Osaka, Japan in uh, 1989. And uh, wow, talk about, you know, a challenging situation. Your first professional management exposure and leadership of people and my entire team was bilingual Japanese. And uh, I was one of, at the time I arrived, I think I was one of eight non-Japanese at the P&G uh, Far East businesses in Kobe and Osaka. And uh, there were only a few other Americans. I think I was one of four Americans, but about eight European, uh, four other European families. So it was an eclectic group, but what a remarkable experience. Uh, I would never trade it for anything in the world. So you were a brand manager in Cincinnati before you made the transfer. Is that no, right? they, oh. they took a flying leap. They said, we believe in you. And, you know, they, they put me through a battery of tests, et cetera. And they just thought that I had the right sensitivities and that I was ready to be promoted in Cincinnati. But they asked me, um, 
you know, whether or not I would be willing to do that in, in Japan. And that was, I, I always give my wife the credit because I initially thought Japan, are you freaking kidding me? How about Canada? <laughs> yeah. yeah right. How about Canada? Um, but they said Japan and my wife said, Hey, this could be our big adventure. And they're basically saying it's just two, two and a half years. Let's do it. And I said, Oh, I can't believe you'd be willing to give up your career at Apple computer. She was in a, in a regional office of Apple at the time. We thought we were going to Japan for two or two and a half years, but um, it became six in Japan and then three and a half more in Hong Kong and mainland China. Fabulous. Yeah, great career. And if you think back to some of those early days, particularly working, you know, in such a different culture and, you know, for those of us that like yourself lived in Japan, myself having traveled there, I mean, Asia is just so completely different in terms of management and development of people. What, what were some mm-hmm. of the biggest challenges that you had, particularly during those early days and, and, and those young Japanese that were coming in to you as their brand manager? Yeah, there were, you know, I can, I still recall it with great um, detail uh, how I felt in those first few weeks and months. Obviously, English was a second language for most of the people in the office, and I really uh, admire how they had really perfected the language to the extent they could, much better than my own Japanese skills. I started studying it in Cincinnati and continued it for at least a year or two after arriving in Japan, but never became good at it and never probably got above a kindergarten level of of, of con you know, speaking and couldn't read it at all. But I think that the biggest adjustment as a, as a young manager, um, you know, so much of the American leadership management culture of that time was about machismo. And I don't want to say command and control, but it was really about being forceful. What I really perceived is that the Japanese did not respond to that kind of fist pounding management and leadership. They wanted to be understood. So I think I became a really good listener. And because English wasn't their native language, sometimes that required a lot of patience in under, trying to understand what the situation was. The Japanese in particular have two truths. One's called tatemai, one is called hone. The hone is the real truth that sometimes the tatemai is what they give you. It's the face-saving truth because they didn't want to tell you to your face that you had done something wrong or incorrectly. Um, And so you had to become very agile, very adept at trying to figure out, um, you know, what's the real issue here? Because they may not often be willing to tell you. So I give that credit for you know, learning to listen, not just with my ears, but with my eyes, I think my marketing skills became much more intuitive because I, if I would go to a focus group, I was listening through simultaneous translation. I had to look at body language. I had to see whether or not the housewife was appreciating our skincare product or our hair care product. And I would sometimes take off my, uh, my headphones and I say to my translator, I think she's, I don't think she's telling the truth. I think she's mm-hmm. lying. And yeah. she would say, oh, Casper son, you're so sharp. You're right. She's, 
she's trying to make you feel better about your product. I said, no, I don't want to feel better about my product. I want the truth. I want to know how to make better products. And uh, once we overcame that, it, um, I think that's why I stayed there six years. Uh, I, I learned to love the Japanese culture and, and where a lot of expats, foreigners were falling on their face because they resorted to too much American leadership and management. I think my sense of empathy mm-hmm. and what I used to call a cultural chameleon, I would able be able to take on that skin uh, of the local environment. And they knew that I didn't speak the language, but they really appreciated that I tried. Um, and so I remember giving speeches in front of thousand people in Japanese uh, phonetically, and I'm sure I butchered the language a lot more than they ever told me I did, but they made me feel good for trying. Yeah, awesome. So um, 16, 17 years of Proctor, you ended up coming back to the States and then made that yes. transition. And gosh, we won't have all the time to go into all the wonderful companies, Church and Dwight, Dial you've worked with. But yes. tell us a little bit about the transition from Proctor. I, I know I can speak for myself. You know, once I was there, I just thought, this is such a great company. I'm going to be here my whole career. Yes. And, you know, I was surprised when the headhunter came. And as you know, I went on to Disney and spent more time yeah. there than I actually did the Proctor. But wow. what was kind of the impetus around your, you know, kind of transition? And I think it was it was, it was Church and Dwight, right? And that was the next job after you left um, Proctor? It was. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, P&G was going through a lot of changes in 2000, 2001. And Dirk Yager, who had been instrumental in bringing me to Japan and Hong Kong and promoting me to general manager and vice president, he, he lost his job. Um, yeah. He lost the confidence of the board. A.G. Laffley stepped in and, and uh, A.G. and I had been very close um, while I was in Asia. And he was actually the one who promoted me and moved me to Hong Kong. So but what I was struggling with coming back to Cincinnati after nine and a half years is that I think I had more culture shock reentering Cincinnati than I did entering Japan. And, you know, I left as a three plus year you know, rising brand manager, I came back as a vice president and a general manager in a different division, going through a lot of change. And as the company started moving to these global business units, there was a lot of hesitation among those who used to run their own kingdoms. And here I am kind of coming in as the new guy, trying to force them to give up some of their previous uh, responsibilities uh, because it was in service to this new global model. And maybe because I had spent so much time in Asia, where particularly in Japan, where you try to emphasize harmony, this job was just overwhelmed with lots of transaction costs. <laughs> and so uh, when I had an opportunity to leave, um, I had talked to Disney, honestly, a couple of years before and was very tantalized by that opportunity. But I stayed with Proctor and I'm not sad that I did. But Church and Dwight was looking for a president and ultimately possibly a successor to the CEO. And the board said that there wasn't anybody on the bench at the time that would be the successor. So I put my name in the ring and I, I became the president of personal care. They were on an M&A and growth uh, tilt which excited me, but it did force me to move from Cincinnati to Princeton, New Jersey, which was not a bad place to live. Um, and I had assumed that I was going to be there for many, many years, but they passed over me. 
Brent uh, to be CEO, and they brought in somebody much older than I. And I thought, God darn, I I really feel like I have a presidency or a CEO role um, in my bandwidth, right. and I'm not sure I want to wait at Church and White to see if I get that job in another five or six years. And that's when another headhunter uh, poached me and brought me out to Scottsdale, Arizona, in 2005 for what was formerly known as the Dial Corporation, and who had just previously been sold to Henkel, the German multinational out of Dusseldorf. So it was in April of 2005 that I moved to Arizona and became CEO, president and CEO of Dial. And, uh, and then on you went, obviously, through a couple of other different, very interesting things. I remember we caught up together in Dogswell when you were out yes. in L.A. for a minute. Correct. And uh, you did the, some time at the Phoenix Suns. But I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, heart and soul marketing. You and I had yeah. a chance to chat a month or so ago as we were preparing for the podcast. And wow, just a tremendous mission and, you know, uh, wonderful direction that you're taking it. And I think you began as an investor, if I'm not mistaken, or came on the board and then have taken over. Before we talk about Heart and Soul, give us kind of the through line. What what, what do you think really brought you there and brought you to this moment now with this uh, wonderful boutique agency you're running? You know, I think I have to go back one job um, to give me any credit for starting Heart and Soul uh, in 2020. When I was in LA and Dogswell, the private equity backed enterprise that I was running was not going according to script and it was just a, a hot mess. I knew that there was not going to be any pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. In fact, that rainbow was vaporizing. So I came back to Arizona after commuting for over two years back and forth from LA to Phoenix. And what I ended up doing is, um, you know, doing a real self-assessment, uh, Brent, of you know, what I did well and where I could add value back in Phoenix. And there was an advertising agency that I came in initially as a consultant and executive chairman and then became CEO. And after really growing that over a four-year period, I became very confident of that I can make the switch from a large multinational company like a, a Procter & Gamble, a Church & Dwight, or a Dial Henkel and, and operate in a very entrepreneurial environment. In fact, I really longed for that. As you know, P&G is and has been one of the world's largest advertisers. So I knew advertising. I knew how to get great advertising. And having worked with some of the best agencies in the world, I also knew what great looked like. But I didn't think there were any agencies, frankly, in the Western United States, or at least in Arizona, that I thought would meet that criteria. And so in 2020, I set out to try to create that, um, a boutique agency that's independent and fiercely independent and proud of that. And for the first time in my life, I didn't have a board. I didn't have um, you know, other investors. It was just, I can help guide this organization with my co-founder and partner, Matt, the way we think it should be and create an agency that we know from past experience uh, is the kind of thing that clients are looking for. And, you know, our first three years has been nothing short of remarkable. And I'm so grateful that I've had this opportunity. How would you say your leadership style has evolved? I mean, you were 
you were baptized in fire in Japan. I mean, having worked in Japan, my, in Asia myself for 10 years, I just know how, how different the whole experience is and how, you know, you start with a debit balance in Asia, right? You know, mm -hmm. in, in the Western cultures, we have the honeymoon period. No, no, you've got to earn that respect and trust. Yes. You know, you typically don't stay. And, you know, gosh, it just sounds like you learned so many important lessons. But if you think about your team today and kind of how you manage and, and your leadership style, what, what do you think's changed or what, what's, what's, what's evolved over that period? Uh, I'd like to think that you know, all the lessons I learned in Asia about being a good listener, um, really working towards cohesion, but allowing for differences, um, appreciating diversity. You know, I've said uh, many times when you, you go into Japan or Hong Kong, China, as I did, it was the first time in my life that I could really say I was a minority and I didn't look or act or think like a lot of the people that were indigenous to those countries. But I think in hindsight, by coming back to the United States, I took on a much more appreciation for the diversity of thought and color and culture and background and trying to turn that into an asset. And so when, and of course, when you're in the advertising industry and you represent this grand scale of different consumers and different sub-segments and have to write different personas, it helps to be sensitive to those important differences that all of us bring to the table and then trying to find those common threads that, uh, you know, we, you know, we can find that honestly bind us together as you and I both learned while there are a lot of differences out there in terms of populations, even between developed and developing markets, we can always find common threads of needs that are almost, you know, omnipotent and 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 completely, um, you know, available to all of us, regardless of whether we come from a country that's developed or one that's developing. And and I think that's what helped make me successful as a manager and leader today. I still try to create a culture where people really want to come to work and that they feel almost a privilege that they're getting big company learning of principles and values and, and and they're able to work in a safe and trusted environment even though it's a, a smaller company and i made this point at a at an off-site meeting just a week or two ago uh, with our team that i've tried to transfer some of the things that i learned and benefited from p and g and ge and some of these larger companies and say you don't need to go to a big company in order to get what that employment agreement looks like at a bigger firm. Sounds like you're having fun, Brad. I think I am. Uh, in fact, I, I've said recently to people when they said I look like I'm smiling a lot more, I said, <laughs> I'm probably having the most fun of my career. Um, I'm not making as much as I did at other places, but it, at this stage of, of my journey, it's more about the quality of the job uh, the impact that I'm capable of making with our clients, as well as our young uh, people who are entrusted uh, us to to employ them. And we've got a good thing going, but gosh, Brant, you know, I know it's the season of giving and it's the season of reflection. And, and maybe that's why it's been particularly poignant for me just to think about how fortunate I am 
um, to have this company and have this experience in my life. And, uh, but I'm, it doesn't mean I'm ungrateful for all the things that preceded it because, uh, my wife likes to remind me I'm kind of a Forrest Gump with all the changes <laughs> I've made, but, uh, they've all, I think made me better. And, uh, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just super, super happy. Gratitude is a virtue. What do you look for, Brad, when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire at Heart and Soul Marketing? Uh, you know, one of the things that we've been told by clients uh, is, boy, you guys, you bring a certain passion, a certain energy. You really step into our shoes. I, I, I feel this sense of collaboration, this sense of partnership. But oftentimes when we win an RFP, and we recently won one for the Arizona Office of Tourism, which is a, is a major account. There were 15 agencies involved, and we were a unanimous selection. Wow. And when I'm told that, they often come back, nobody had more passion for the subject of the strategy and how you were going to approach it. So I look for those qualities in, in people that we bring in. Do I see passion? Do I see integrity? Um, authenticity, as you know, Brent is so critically important. People can pick out phonies. They can pick out posers and people who aren't, you know, living their real and best life. And I look for that. I want to understand just as you've tried to today, what makes me tick. Uh, I, I want to find out from people what makes them tick. When are they doing their best work? And can I envision them being um, a member of our team? I try to paint a very, very vivid picture of what working at Heart and Soul is like. And we've had a lot of success in having people join us and then get up to speed really fast. Uh, so it's been it's been great to see. We've become, I think, a bit of a preferred employer, and I love that label. What do you look for in the clients that you try to attract to Heart and Soul? You know, when we were starting out, any client that was willing to pay us looked like a good one, but I think we've learned our lesson. Um, yeah, it does we, happen that way. <laughs> we do have criteria now, um, one of which is we look for a client. Um, if they haven't worked with an agency much, we want to make sure that they have respect for marketing and advertising and that they view the investment in marketing and advertising as something that is an asset as opposed to just this mindset of an expense. Yes, we need to show a return on investment. No, it's not the old days where you just spend money and hope you get results. We're very metrics driven, but fundamentally we look for people who honestly believe that they can help set their brand apart in the eyes of consumers if they invest in the right forms of advertising and marketing support. I still love to get into strategy and those clients who say, hey, we're having some trouble with our strategy, with our consumer understanding and insights. I love them even more because then they invite us into an area where I feel like I can make uh, some of my best contributions. So um, I, I also think that, you know, by focusing on challenger brands, um, at Proctor, we mostly had market-leading brands. But when I moved on to Church and & Dwight and Dial and many other companies since then, I, I was overseeing challenger brands more than leadership brands. And it takes a special quality to understand what it is to be a challenger. And when you're out being outspent 10 to 1 by a market leader, 
how do you grow your business and, and your significance? And I think this is where we've kind of cut out our little space of the advertising world. We can work with challenger brands that don't have the biggest budgets, but they still have big dreams, big ambition. And, and we help them find that big idea and spend just as much or just as much as they need to make a difference, but often uh, at a significantly lower level than the companies that they're competing against. And I think that's, you know, after three years, um, I, I would say that those who continue to employ us are finding that we can bring them big ideas and we don't need big budgets to make them happen. Love it. Brad, we're just about out of time, but we always have one last question. We always ask our CEO guests, and that's what kind of career and life advice would you give to our listeners or someone that has a rise in their old corner office someday? I, I, I tell my own kids who are in their 20s and early 30s that, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I didn't have my eye on the corner office. I didn't have um, an ambition or even maybe a necessary uh, a belief that I was going to be president and CEO of anything. So I, I, I think they believe that I'm just trying to be humble. And no, that was the case. I didn't think that way. But as I got more wins on the board, I gained greater confidence. And what I think you have learned and I have learned over time, you can only be really, really great at things that you love things that may give you some joy. The inherent nature of the work has to be pleasing because life is too short to do work that sucks or to stay in a job that sucks. And so I, I remind myself of that. And, and maybe that's what's made this so gratifying because I'm very thoroughly enjoying my work and the people around me. So I just encourage people. Obviously, they should look at executive recruiters like you, Brent, as as if you're a client, use them so you can attract talent. And if you are a prospect or a candidate, get to know them, get to know the philosophies. I learned some of my best management and leadership lessons from talking to executive recruiters who were so steeped in the knowledge of how to find a fit between a candidate and a company. And so I, I still believe today, despite all the digital solutions that are out there for job placement, that the best candidates are often those that come through an executive recruiter. And so I would encourage people, even today with all the digital alternatives, get to know your executive recruiters because they'll probably get you to where you want to go faster and with a better fit long-term. Brad Casper is the CEO and co-founder of Heart and Soul Marketing, the fiercely independent boutique agency for challenger brands that uses strategy, art, science, and their unique voices to create purpose-driven business solutions while being a positive force for change. Brad Casper, old friend, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you so much, Brent, for this opportunity. It's great to catch up with you, and I'm so proud of the work you're doing. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 